Good morning. Uh, I'm Johnny, one of the leaders of the church here. It's my privilege to be able to um, look at a passage from the Bible with you today, as we would do every week. And in our series at the moment, as you saw uh, behind me from the video, uh, our series is called Prayer Equals Life. And we've been looking at prayer generally, but particularly also going through uh, some of the great prayers from the Bible um, and seeing how they prayed and learning from those. And today we find ourselves on that great hero of the Old Testament, Daniel. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Daniel chapter 9, 1 to 20. I want to focus on this one prayer of Daniel, uh, although it's not the only prayer. It's, as you can see, it's got quite a lot to it, so we can get into it. It's not a short passage. I'm going to read the whole lot just to start and get going. Uh, I'm not going to be going through this blow by blow. We're going to take some principles from this and go off into some other places. Just as you're turning and getting ready for that, just even as Andy was talking before, it's funny how you can have your head in a talk all week, and then you can also know what's going on in the world, but you never put the two together. <laughs> as only as we just heard Andy say, this is so relevant for us today, this talk. It's amazing how things come together the way they come together, and I think you'll see that quite quickly as we go through. Um, but great, right. Daniel 9, 1 to 20, I'm reading from the NIV translation. This is what it says. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Israel, both far and near, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring this disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord, your, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, Hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. 
While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Dot, dot, dot. I'll leave it there. Just the enigmatic, what Gabriel does and how he does. You'll have to come back to that later. But as you'll see, I needed to read that, that last bit as well for the context. Okay, there we go. It's a reasonably lengthy prayer, passionate prayer, uh, prayer with a specific context as well. And we need to understand that context very clearly, or we're not going to get this in the slightest. And the context is this. The people of God at this time are in real trouble. Okay? In fact, it would be fair to say that the people of God, Israel, are in the worst trouble they are ever at at any point in the Old Testament and probably have been at any point since. Israel has been exiled from their land. They've lost their nation status as a people. Their capital city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. The temple, the kind of symbol and heart of the Jewish religion, has been burnt to the ground. And all the people of Israel have either been killed or deported. It doesn't get a lot worse than that, really. It's a terrible low point for the people of God. And Daniel describes the situation in a number of ways. He talks about the shame on God's people, the scorn on God's people, and this desolation. That's the word he uses most here. It's a desolation. That's exactly what it is. As he looked at Jerusalem at this time, it would have been desolate. And that was very much the state of God's people in the time of Daniel. And Daniel, uh, as you might know from the story, he had some amazing things that happened to him, amazing things that he did. Uh, in fact, he, he had quite a lot of power and authority within the Babylonian Empire at a number of points in his life, but we can't be under any illusion uh, about this guy. He had a rough time of things. He's basically been taken on by the people to serve at the people who killed his family and destroyed everything that was dear to him, and he was meant to be just towing the line and going along with it and supporting their society. That was his job. That's what he had to do. An awful situation. Now, however... While this seems complete doom and gloom, in all of the destruction and despair, Daniel sees hope. And uh, I think there are two specific reasons given. One is explicitly given, one's implied in what's said. And the first is this, is that as we see uh, from this prayer, this is in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, okay? Now what had happened uh, one year before this was Darius, who's uh, the king of the, the, the leader of the Persian Empire, his empire had replaced and taken over the Babylonian Empire, you see this as you go through history and in the Bible as well. Empires rise and they're indestructible and then another one comes along and knocks them out and takes them over. And Babylon have been the big dogs for a while, taking out Israel, taking out all of these guys. And then they look like they get un- insurmountable. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his son as well. But no, they're not. Everyone's time comes. And at this point, the Persian Empire swept in and wiped out the Babylonians. And it's a year in. So Daniel might be thinking and the people of Israel think, right, well, the ones who got us have gone. Is there hope now? And so Daniel, as he probably has that in his mind anyway, he's reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, and he sees that Jeremiah's written already that despite these troubles, God still loves Israel, they're still his people, and he's promised even that the desolation they've experienced will not last forever. Okay? There's a period of time decreed for that, but then they'll be rescued from that. And so in this state of desperation, but also hope, Daniel responds. And how does he respond? Well, he prays, doesn't he? Now, before we move on to that, let's just do a quick update of where we're at and how we fit into this story. Because I'm sure I don't need to tell you too much that this is incredibly relevant to our situation today. Many people 
have uh, read different things into Daniel's identification with his people here, um, as we'll go on to talk about in a bit. But for Daniel, for the people of God, they had an unusual situation. Their people was kind of two things. Your people with the place you lived, like for us, we say our people, you might say the English people or the people of Birmingham or the place you live. But more specifically, it was the people of God. So it wasn't just the area they lived in, it was uh, the people of God. I think in a sense you can apply to both, but you need to have a focus on the second. For us, looking around our world, our society generally, our people, we see desolation in all sorts of different ways. We see that in social breakdown. We see that in, in real foolishness being adopted from the highest levels and fed down to all areas of society. We see it in bombs going off in cities very near to us and also in the responses sometimes to those bombs going off. But honing into Daniel's concept, we've got to be clear on this. He is mainly talking about his people as God's people. And when we look out at God's people today, the church, I would say we see a similar thing to what Daniel saw here. If I preached this 10 years ago, I could have said, look, the church lies desolate because we're marginalized in our society. The, the, the church of Jesus Christ, the people that bear the name of the most worthy one, is seen as pathetic and on the edges and we're irrelevant and we're silly. And I could have said, you know what, this is desolation, we need to act on this, we should take offence to this, you know. And in a sense I would say all of that. But we've got to realise that things have moved on a step from that situation and not in a good direction. We're still marginalised, that would be true. But peop- and people still see Christians as irrelevant and silly. That's also true. But now we're increasingly viewed in a more sinister and hostile way as well. As uh, one recent blogger put it, it reflecting, saying, look, when I grew up, Christians were the do-gooders. And they were kind of pitied for that. Now we're the do-badders. And we're hated for that in many ways. We're portrayed as uh, going against the key values of our nation, tolerance, equality. We're portrayed as cold and judgmental and irrelevant and silly still we're still silly in most people's minds and this has an effect on people people's attitudes are hardening against christianity in some sectors of our society I've noticed in the last even the last five years a new resistance to the gospel building up in many many people people who would have given you a little bit of time before no way i don't want to be associated with christians they're the baddies don't have anything to do with that uh, and obviously there are calls for legislation that would make it very difficult for churches like us to live out the teachings of the bible now just to be clear we're not there yet but for me personally i can see how we could get there now more clearly than ever could have done in the the past on the whole In many key sectors of our society, less people are becoming Christians than were even 10 years ago, and more Christians are falling by the wayside. God's people are lying desolate in our day and age too. I thought, well, thanks for getting me out of bed for that, Johnny. That's incredibly depressing. What are you trying to do? You're trying to sap any faith that I have here. You've got to understand something here. I'm definitely not trying to do that. And I think that... I'm not saying you're thinking that, I'm just saying that kind of thought, because that problem to my head I was doing this, comes from a misunderstanding of faith. Often we think of faith as, well, we've got to just pick out the good bits and think the best and look on the bright side and then God can come through. That's not faith. Faith faces the facts and still believes God. It's the model we see in the Bible. Model of, the model of faith is given as Abraham. Abraham is a man who was promised that he would have a child with his wife Sarah. But there were some serious obstacles when he actually looked at the situation. It says in Romans 4 that, that, uh, that Abraham faced the fact, faced the fact, that's important, that his body was as good as dead. 
Okay, so this is about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He didn't look on the bright side and say, oh, you know what, it's not every bit of you that's covered in wrinkles, love. It's not like there's still life there somewhere. Come put your teeth back in, it's going to be all right. You know? he, he, he didn't like, try to move the situation up more. He didn't pretend there was more life going on there than there was. No, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. But what does it say? But he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. No, in in no way am I trying to douse faith today. I want to call you to appropriate faith-filled action in the real situation we find ourselves in. And as we do that, we find a precedent in Daniel of someone who did just that in a very similar situation. So I think we'd be wise to kind of follow his example and learn from this guy. And so what does he do? Uh, When we see that, we should see what we should do. And what did he do? As I said, he prayed. Daniel prayed. And in a sense, the what should we do comes this whole series on prayer. Why are we spending all these months looking at prayer? Well, it's because that's the response that's called from us. What's the most important thing we can do to bombs going off in Paris, to refugee crisis, to a, a country increasingly materialistic? What is it? We pray. And that's why each of these weeks, going through what is prayer, how does that affect our life? This is, this is lifeblood stuff. This isn't peripheral stuff going on here. This week, as many of you have signed up for the 24-7 prayer, we put a little slot in, kind of push through as you're, like, you're looking at your clock. Well, I've only done 10 minutes. I've got an hour of this to do. <laughs> and you push through. Why do we do that? Well, because we've got to lay hold of God for this sort of stuff. When we meet up in a couple of weeks for our first late night prayer uh, session, a Friday evening in a couple of weeks in the, in the city centre, praying till two in the morning. Some of you might think that's not for me. Nothing. Uh, I, I, come on, I've got things to do. Saturday morning is important. No, we, why are we doing it? We're gathering to plead to God for these things. Prayer is vitally important. So look at what Daniel's response is, what he did. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. This is the kind of prayer we've been looking at in this series that would be under the wrestling with God type of prayer. I'm going to talk about two different types of prayer. This is it. This is a Jacob sort of prayer. It's a I will not let go and you go until you bless me sort of prayer. It's a it is time for you to act for your law is being broken sort of prayer. It's a in wrath remember mercy sort of prayer. That's what Daniel's doing here. He's pleading with God. But notice this, Daniel prays in a different way as well from that. Verse 4 says this, I prayed to my Lord, my God, and confessed. That's what it says here. Now Daniel responds then by putting requests before God. But actually, as I'm sure you noticed, the majority of this prayer is actually in the form of a confession of sin. And what I want to do today actually is focus mainly on that aspect of this prayer. And as I said a few minutes ago, I'm not going to go through this verse by verse. And it might even be that what I say is not the main point of this passage, but it's certainly in here. And it's saying we, we've not talked about yet in this series, but it's a very important part of prayer. So what I would like to do is use this platform, um, passage as a springboard for us to look at this idea of confession. Okay, Just so you know that it is actually a springboard for that. I know there's some slight peculiarities about Daniel's confession here. Most notably that most of his confession are, are we've sinned rather than I've sinned, okay? Now, you might think, well, what's going on there? We'll come back to that at the end. Don't you worry about that. But you've got to notice that what is happening here, we clearly know that it's not him confessing other people's sins. We know that because of verse 20, okay? Because it says this. He's reflecting on his prayer. He says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, okay? This is clearly identifying with his people. We'll look at that a bit later. But this is a prayer of personal confession as well. And so I'd like to use this as a platform to look at this idea of confession. What is confession? 
Should we do it as Christians? How regularly? Why? Those sort of questions. And then at the end, I want to zoom back into the context of Daniel and our context today to see how does confession then fit in with the kind of prayers we want to pray on the response of the declining uh, uh, church attendance figures, on a response of bombs going off in Paris, on a response of crises here and there in our society. How does confession fit into that? Okay. See the plan? You got it. Let's go. Okay, right. What is confession all about then? Well, this passage lays it out very simply for us and very helpfully. What does it look like for Daniel? Well, confession has two elements for Daniel. Firstly, it involves admitting that you've sinned, okay? Sin is one of those very religious words that even people who aren't religious would kind of understand and would have a general concept of. But to help all of us, wherever you're at today, Daniel gives us about 20 different words for sin in this passage. Okay, so in verse 5, he says, we have sinned. And you think, okay, what's sin then? Why does that exactly work? Well, then he goes on, he describes it in a load of different ways. You can go through the passage, he says, we have sinned. What does that mean? We have done wrong. We have been wicked. We have not obeyed God. We have turned away from God. We've refused to obey God. We've rebelled against God. We've turned away from God's commands and law. We've transgressed God's law. We've not listened to God's servants, the prophets. There's a few more as well. But that's how Daniel, he keeps saying, this is what sin is. It's these things. So first he's admitting you've sinned. And secondly, it's asking for forgiveness. This is where he ends the prayer. Verse 19, Lord, forgive. That's his agenda. That's essentially... In a nutshell, Christian confession for you. Confession is admitting you've sinned and asking for forgiveness. And this whole practice is at the very heart of all it means to be a Christian. The Bible says that the world is not split into good people and bad people, but that all of us have sinned. Some sins more obvious than others, of course, but we've all sinned. It's still the same problem in our hearts. We've all sinned and fall short of God's standards. And also, sin is a serious business. Our sins are not some little faux pas that we've done or innocent mistakes. No, as Daniel points out, they are essentially breakages of God's law. That's how he puts it. And therefore, they're serious in that regard. It's not even, actually. They're just breaking of some cold law. As we do it, again, as Daniel points out, we are showing our heart against God himself. We're, we're personally acting towards God. He says, he says of sin, they're disobedience against God, rebellion against God. It's, our sins are symbols of our whole lives. This is the image he uses, turning away from God. That's what sin is for Daniel, and I think that's a very uh, fair description of what sin is for all of us as well. Now, with this whole breaking the law thing, I think we can understand the seriousness here. If you break the law of the land, you get punished. Okay? It's not mean or pedantic. That's just how things work. It's that the same with God. God is the just judge of all things. If you break his law, there is a punishment. It's not being mean. It's not being kind of just nitpicky. No, he's a judge. You can't, like a normal judge, you can't go in and the judge go, yeah, I know you're guilty, but you know, I love those shoes. You're off. It wouldn't work at all, okay? That's not how justice works, and it's the same. So this is a serious business. And according to the Bible, the judgment of God on sin is most final after we die. That's clear uh, in Scripture. Hebrews nine twenty-seven: people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. And the Bible is also pretty clear on what that judgment will look like. And again, it links in, I think, kind of to this passage. Daniel describes sin as turning away from God. Well, what does God then do as a punishment for our sin? Well, he then turns away from us. And in the final judgment, sinners naturally just coming to God with our sin, that's the punishment, turning away from us. 
And that separation from God on that day, unless it's dealt with, goes on forever. And that's essentially what's meant by the biblical word hell. God's separation from us, turning away from us forever. Now, some of you might think, oh, phew, that's all right. (laughs) I thought it was like getting stabbed in a fire, which is, I don't like that idea, with people with horns. That's horrible, right? But God turning away from you forever. Well, you know what? I could make that work. Get on with what I want to do. I don't want to stick their nose in my business and interfering. That's okay. It's not too bad. I'd argue that that kind of misses the point slightly of what this means. This is much worse than some funny little red cartoon characters poking you with tridents, okay? Now, if the Bible's correct, God isn't just the one who made us. He's the one who made us to be in relationship with him. That's how we're most fulfilled in our lives, by connection with God, the one who made us. We might not recognize God's contributions to our lives now. We might do. But even if we don't recognize them, the Bible says that he, ha- he is the one who's permeated life with goodness and joy and peace and love. The corruption of those things, the reason for that lies elsewhere, but he's the source of those things. And so if you remove him from the equation, I would argue that's a state that's not worth being in for a minute, let alone forever. Now, this is a serious business. And on the back of that, one, the one thing we as human beings need more than anything else is this destination of this passage, is forgiveness. We need a way to get pardoned in that courtroom when we die. And the Christian message says, after all that downer stuff, delightfully it puts for us, and we can. You can be forgiven, and it's through Jesus. And the basic idea is that Jesus died on the cross to pay that punishment and penalty that we were due. And uh, the gospel writers make this clear. As he's on the cross dying. One of Jesus' last phrases, he calls out, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? In other words, why have you turned away from me? I never turned away from you. What's going on? Well, what's going on is all of us who turned away from God, Jesus received the punishment we deserved on himself. And now... For any of us, if we choose now to follow Jesus, it's like our punishment has already been paid by someone else. We don't need to pay it. We are forgiven. That forgiveness is ours. We own it. We're forgiven of everything we've done before. We are forgiven for anything we are doing now. We're forgiven for anything that comes in the future. And we can look forward to meeting God, not as the judge who will send us down, but as the father who can welcome us into his home. If you're not a Christian here, I'd argue strongly that the thing you need most at the moment is forgiveness. It's not a small thing. It's not a religious thing. It's something you need. And to get that involves following Jesus. And as you do that, we confess our sins to him. We come in in repentance, confession of sins, and faith. That's how we become a Christian. To put it simply, that's what becoming a Christian is. Admitting to God that I've sinned and then following him and receiving forgiveness for your sins. So confession is, is vital in the whole concept of Christianity. If you aren't Christians, I'd love you to consider that. For those who are Christians, we, we know that. That's at the root of all things. You'd have been saying, yeah, okay, I know this stuff. It's glorious. It's wonderful. I hope you think that, but I know this. But here's the problem then, is if you've accepted everything I've said there, you might ask, well, okay then, if I am now forgiven for everything I've ever done and ever will do, why would I bother confessing my sins and trying to ask for forgiveness again? What's the point in asking for forgiveness when you're being told by God already that you're already forgiven? Now, 
Just let that marinate for a moment, you know. I, I can tell, I know some of you have pondered that little one before. I know for others you think, yeah, that's funny, I've never thought of that. Now, whether you have thought of that or not, I would imagine that questions like that do affect us in our practice, and they show themselves, maybe not even consciously in our thinking, but in how we do things, and particularly in how we confess our sins. For most Christians, and I would put myself in this bracket for many uh, times in my life, confession is just that thing in the Bible that you kind of do, but I don't really understand why. There's no reason why. So basically, best to keep my nose clean, cover my back, say sorry for my sins. Don't really understand, I'm forgiven anyway, why would I ask God to forgive me again? But you know what, it says to do it, so let's tick that box, just to be absolutely on the safe side, okay? <laughs> again, in these sense, every time I do this, I give these illustrations, and I just look around and think, maybe this is just me. <laughs> well, if it's just me, fair enough, but I imagine there'll be at least one of you who might have done something like that before, okay? Um, now, um, I think the problem here is that we don't understand confession, because that's not what confession is. If we ever find ourselves doing box ticking as Christians, we need to stop right away and go, wait a minute, what's happening? Because everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. If you're just ticking a box, I don't, I'm just covering my back, that is actually sin. Do you know that? It's a challenge for you, isn't it? Okay, that fits in with today. No, we need to know why. We need to have faith as we confess. Yes, this is why I'm doing that. Okay, and I don't think we understand confession because actually I don't think we understand forgiveness a lot of the time. And I think that is because we don't really understand sin a lot of the time. And you see, the picture I've painted so far has missed out something vitally important about sin, which we often forget. Although sin is only conscious and deliberate. It's not accident. Anyways, now I'm moving on. Um, we often forget this about sin. As Christians, we often forget this about sin. Actually, I think if you're here not a Christian, you'll say, well, that's obvious. It's the other bit I don't really get. But as Christians, we often see sin as a spiritual thing. It's purely spiritual. Oh, yeah, it affects that day in the future. I need to get that day sorted. But if I can get my get-out-of-jail-free card, fantastic. Sin dealt with. No problem for me. No, no, that's not it at all. While sin is primarily against God, sin also has dramatic effects on us. And I don't mean that after we die, I mean that now. Daniel knew this. What Daniel's doing in this prayer is he's looking around him and he's seeing trouble. Seeing, look, there's trouble, there's disaster, there's devastation. It's like instantly he knows, ah, I smell a rat here. If there's trouble, there'll be something else as well. Sin, that's what it is. He links the two together straight away. Why is there trouble? Well, it's because of sin. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. It ruins, it damages, it destroys And it does that to the lives of people around us as we sin. But even more than that, it does that to ourselves. My sin has potential to ruin my life. And that's even the case, as is the case in that example, if I'm a Christian. This isn't just for those out there, it's for Christians. Paul writes on this in Romans chapter 6. You've got a Bible, might worth turning to. It's been a couple of minutes there. Romans 6, 15 to 16. It's not going to come up uh, behind me. Okay? Romans six fifteen to 16, he asks this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Slightly different language. Paul's explained that, but he's basically saying, Shall we sin because we're forgiven? We're forgiven sons of God. doesn't matter what we do. Already got a ticket to heaven. Shall we sin then? No. His answer is this, next verse. By no means. Quick translation of that in case you're struggling. That means no. Okay? No, by no means. Certainly not. Why? Well, here's the reason. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey them as slaves, you are the slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which results in death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. What's his point? 
His point is that there is another dimension to sin that his readers who've over-spiritualized it haven't considered. Yes, sin affects God, but it also affects us and not in a good way. Listen, sin isn't only bad for us if God judges us for it. Sin isn't only bad for us if God judges us for it. God judges us for it largely because sin is bad for us. Do you see? Sin is not presented in the Bible as the really fun stuff that God doesn't really like, but as a poison that destroys us from the inside out, that corrupts us and makes us less than we were ever made to be. Distorted, corrupted and degraded. And that's why God hates it and speaks about it so much. It's not as a killjoy. It's because he loves us. He doesn't want us to ruin ourselves. Using Paul's analogy, when we sin... We're submitting ourselves to a slave master who is intent on destroying us. You might think this is all very poetic, isn't it? But I think we can understand this. Paul's explaining something that we all know is true from modern day psychology. When you do an action a number of times, that action can become a habit, can't it? We all know that. Different things, some good habits, some bad habits, some neutral habits, but that happens, doesn't it? It's easier to do a bit down the line. Well, if you continue with that habit for long enough, that habit becomes an unbreakable, it seems, addiction. And an addiction becomes the whole lifestyle. And if your lifestyle is a lifestyle of sin, in whatever facet that might mean, where does that end up? Ends up in death. That's what Paul says. If anyone who saves to sin, uh, if you're saved to sin, it results in death. Exactly the same word God used to warn the very first humans away from sin. Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't eat from that tree or you will die. Exactly the same thing. For those guys, uh, the uh, application of that was a little more literal. When they did disobey God, well, what happened was disease and sickness and funerals entered human experience for the first time. For us... Actually, we know disease, sickness, and funerals are going to be part of our future, whatever way around we look at it. That's the world we live in. But death still can stand for a whole load of different things. Where's that going? What does death mean for us as we sin? Where is it heading? Addiction to pornography. Being swallowed up in bitterness. Becoming controlled by your temper. Giving in to a permanent victim mentality. Paranoia, hatred, alcoholism, crippling fear. All of those things are, in a sense, just a step away from death anyway. But in a sense, they kind of do the job themselves. When we sin, let's use another analogy. I wanted to get this. Another picture. I want to come back to this picture. It's like we're jumping into a river with a very, very strong current. And what might happen is the current gets stronger the further we go down the river. And it might be that we enjoy it for a little while and we go, whoa, whoa, hold on. Actually, I don't want to be out of control. And we, we go to swim back. And actually, that's okay. At the beginning, we get ourselves back in a few. That's all right then. And then we go again. But the further we go down that river, the stronger and stronger the current gets until there comes a point that if we continue down that route, we suddenly have the, the moment of horror when we realize, you know what? I'm swimming my hardest back downstream and I don't have a hope. I'm moving faster this way than that way. I'm stuck. I'm a slave to sin. Just to make it clear, I am not describing people who aren't Christians. Paul's not talking to people who aren't Christians in Rome. Now, this is for us who know Jesus, who've had our sins forgiven and know that we're going to be in heaven with him forever. That's still, that's still, those things can happen together. So why do we confess our sins then? 1 John 1 verse 9, which I do have on the slide. I think we'll just leave this up for the rest of the time. If that's all right, Pam. 
it tells us. I think this is the clearest version. It puts all these things together. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John's saying confession's a good idea. Why? He gives two reasons why confession's a good idea. Two results of confession. And we've looked at both of them. Firstly, forgiveness. Okay, we've seen that. Change status with God. Relating to God no longer primarily as judge, but as father. Living under his favor, not his hostility. Not having to fear death as the moment when God will turn away from us forever, but knowing we're forgiven. And that is secured once and for all when we become a Christian. Okay? Please understand the place of confession within that forgiveness thing. Okay? Confession does not earn us forgiveness. Okay? got to understand this our forgiveness was won by jesus once and for all on the cross and as we come to him admitting we're sinners and seeking his forgiveness on that first occasion it brings us into god's family into a state of forgiveness we are then forgiven stamps are branded on your head you ain't getting that off okay and that changed status then is not up in the air every time you sin until fury's confessed he's back in it's not like if I get hit from a bus on the way from today and I've sinned and haven't confessed to it, it's not like, oh, whoa, we don't know what to do with this one. This is a real problem now in the courts of heaven. How are we going to get around this? No, there's nothing like that. That's not the case at all. No, li- listen, we've got to be sure on this. All of our sins, past, present and future, were forgiven the moment we came to Jesus in confession and faith that first time. John writes this, he's saying, look, we know this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. You know this stuff. He's forgiven you. You are forgiven. And remember the part that repentance and confession played in all that. But listen, he puts it very clearly here. There is a second reason why we must build the practice of repentance into our lives. Why? He's faithful and just to forgive us, yeah, but to also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? What it means is this, to help us to stop sinning in the future. That's what it means. Confession is one of the tools that God graciously gives us to help spit out the poison. It's one of the the ways that God helps us to start swimming back against the current so that we don't destroy ourselves. Be, Be clear with you here, I think there'll be some of us in different places here. I think that some of you will find this demotivating because you won't think, oh, the sins don't matter, don't they? I, I, it will never get me over there. I want to say, please reconsider what you're doing in that case. But some of you, it's opposite. You'll be saying, this isn't motivating because I'm already so far downstream, Johnny, that I cannot see any way to get back. I could say sorry. If you, I say sorry, sorry, God. But you know what? That's not going to change anything. You want to be, be absolutely clear here. When we confess our sins... There's a sense we're saying, yes, I'm coming back upstream. But it's not like God said, click your fingers. All the effects of sin is now gone in your life, okay? Notice that for Daniel, that was definitely the case. Daniel prays this incredible prayer. I mean, if you pray a prayer and Gabriel comes to visit you at the end, you know you've got the double thumbs up from God. That's an Ofsted outstanding right there in the school of prayer. I mean, this is great. So you expect God to say, yep, great, forgiven. That You wake up tomorrow, everyone will be back in the land. It's going to be fine. What does Gabriel say if you look at it? He says this, Daniel heard your prayer. You are highly acclaimed, brilliant prayer. Tell you what, you're going to be waiting hundreds of years to see the answer to that prayer. What? My prayer was great. That was like a super like on Facebook, God. What's the problem here? The problem is this. Sin's consequences are deep and they take time to unpick. That's the case of Israel. It took hundreds of years. 
okay? Until God's plan started going through Jesus, you know, and how that kind of unpicked. In our lives, it's still the same. Yeah, we know his forgiveness, and as we confess our sins, it's a statement of intent that we want to change. More than that, actually. It's not just us saying, I'm now doing this on my own. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and he cleanses us. What happens? Well, what he does is we spit out the poison. He comes and administers the medicine to help our bodies heal. As we swim upstream, he comes alongside us, he grabs us, and he starts tugging us upstream too. His, his power through his spirit's with us. But let's be under no illusions here. Sin digs deep, and it will take time, and you will have to come back to God again and again. And I, I say that because I know for some of you, I say, look, I've, I haven't even been thinking of this as sin because I knew that it was pointless. So now, okay, I'm going to say sorry today, maybe in the ministry time. I'm sorry, Lord. Now you're faithful and just to cleanse me. And he is. We believe that. We trust that. Then you wake up tomorrow and you think, it's the same again. Useless. Didn't work. God's failed me. No, no. This is the start of swimming back upstream. For some of you, you've got a long way to go. But I tell you what, if you never take this step, you are doomed. Yeah, put my tickets in heaven. Well, no, no, no. Don't think of that. Think about where you're at now. There's a way out here. Please take it. Can't plead with you enough for that. Now, this is not meant to be something we do when we're right down screaming. And this is why I encourage all of you to build confession into your lives. Confessing sins, basically, whenever we realize we've done them. We don't leave them until they start causing us serious problems. The less poison we have to vomit up each time, uh, or the less far we go downstream, the easier it's going to be for us. Now, how does this work? Well, very practically, I, I'd get in the habit of confessing sins as they come up. When you come before God, it's not like you, you kind of dig deep, like, I'm going to stay here until I find something. I must have done something wrong in the last day. You know what? It's possible maybe that's not the case. Maybe you lived the entire day in victory. Fantastic, okay? If you're digging around too much, I'd forget about it, you know? Don't do that. Wait till the Holy Spirit is more than happy to say, no, no, there's that, okay? Also, we don't beat ourselves up and take the sort of position that I need to say, sorry, this is a bad sin. Kind of, I, I imagine there might, might be, well be some from kind of Catholic background here who have a different view of confession, but many who aren't from Catholic background look on that and say, oh, that, I don't do things that way. This kind of idea, well, you did this sin, so this many confessions, you need to do this many different things. But we can take that view. You say sorry, and you then think to yourself, mm, that wasn't good enough. I did something that was definitely worth two sorries yesterday, so I'm really sorry again. If it's really bad, we never get round to singing in our time of prayer or even praying for anything because it's just I'm sorry I'm really sorry I'm really really sorry and then we feel phew God heard me no 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 forget that right away we don't beat ourselves up no we say sorry I'm moving on thank you I'm forgiven in you Jesus we're fighting this together now I worship you Lord because I know that I'm in safe hands that's how we confess whenever we feel our conscience pricked by the Holy Spirit and you realize yeah that wasn't right even if you think that doesn't seem like a massive thing no we bring it straight to God. We remember, if we're a Christian, he's already forgiven us, and he wants us to be rescued from the harm of sin as well, and he wants us to be rescued from that even more than we do. And confession is saying to him, let's fight this together, Lord. I'm full of hope that his assistance is effective and available to us. That's what confession is. I encourage you, please don't take it lightly. I want to just conclude by applying this, as I said before, just to the context we're in and linking that with Daniel. Because we've got the general idea. Let's just quickly go back to the passage we finish and see here. Remember why Daniel was praying? It was because God's people were in a right state. They seemed lost and in desperate need. And we're in a very similar situation, as I said. And uh, we then can apply this, but we've got to see as well, just going back to this point I made at the beginning, obviously this intriguing element of this passage is this kind of communal confession that Daniel sort of does. We've sinned. We've done this. 
And you ask, really, Daniel, you're talking about yourself because you seem like a pretty good guy, actually. Um, but when we, some people have come to all sorts of conclusions in this and built ideas that says, right, what we need to do is even if we've not done sins, if we see them somewhere else in our people, in God's people, in our country, we should uh, repent for them and how, somehow that will fix the problem. Now, I've got a number of problems with that idea. I guess at root, when we looked at what confession is, it's hard to see how me confessing other people's sins could be of any benefit to them at all, really. Because it's about benefiting them as well as a status thing. I can't confess someone into God's family as a forgiven child. It'd be nice, but I can't do it. And I definitely can't make a statement of intent to turn away from sin for someone else. That's kind of how a statement of intent works. It has to be by the person making the statement, I suppose. My more important point comes, as I mentioned at the beginning from the passage, is in verse 20 makes it very clear, Daniel is confessing his sins. It just happens to be that they're shared by those around him. Or does it just happen to be? Is there a link here? I, I think here, at this point, we do see that there's something powerful in this identification that Daniel makes with his people. How did this thing work? I, I imagine, it's wildly speculative, but let's imagine how this prayer came about. I would imagine Daniel would have come to God to pray for God to rescue his people. He wants God to remove his heavy discipline from his people that he's done. And he sees all of these sins that Israel has done that's got them in this state. So he goes to pray and he's ready with his most bombastic of prayers that basically goes along the lines of, God, save us from the st- stupidity of these people look at them lord they're a bunch of idiots they've totally messed up they've disregarded you at all points lord i'm kind of connected with them unfortunately but please save us all from their idiocy okay he would not have used that he would have done that in hebrew not in english so there'd be different words but it would have been pretty much exactly like that anyway um now i think as he goes almost to say something in that spirit it's as if his heart suddenly sinks and as he starts looking at the sins of others he realizes well, wait a minute, those sins are in my heart as well. Maybe they're not so developed as in the Baal worshippers or in those who were defrauding their neighbours or mistreating the poor, but suddenly he realised the same attitudes are in me. Daniel might not have been as far downstream as the worst of his people, but he wasn't innocent by any stretch of the imagination. And so he realised that to plead with God to turn away from judging his people meant pleading with God not to leave him alone in those sins either. There is no place for a moral high ground in these sort of prayers. Now, Daniel realized he needed to say sorry for himself before he could get to anybody else. And I think this is a type of identification that we have to make with our people. Because when you're part of a people, it is very, very likely their sins will infect you. It might not be as obvious. It might be bigger in those who look around us. But that's not, the, that's not the point. They're in here somewhere. We might not be blowing people up outside football stadiums. But what are we doing to build our empire at the expense of others around us? We might not be fighting over tellies on Black Friday. But it could well be we're envying other people's possessions and not being generous enough with our own. Maybe we're not racially abusing marginalised members of our community. But you know what? It's likely that for many of us, we're not going out of our way to help the poor and to give to the needs of others either. So as we plead for our nation and plead for the church, what do we do? I think we follow Daniel's example. We open ourselves to the Holy Spirit to pinpoint the problems in us. And then we, as we do that, what are we doing? Well, we then are praying for God to move, but we are becoming the answer to our prayers too. 
Because you know what? We know that prayer is powerful. We know that God acts on the behalf of, of us as we bring pleas to him. But we've got to be clear as well. Usually God acts on those prayers through his people, through us. And as we come and we confess as part of our pleas, what we're doing is saying, yeah, Lord, we want you to do it, but also I recognize I want to be part of the solution too. I'm making a statement of intent that I don't want the sins I see that have been so ruinous in others, that maybe they're massively magnified there. I don't want to be another person hobbling along trying to help those whose legs are damaged. No, no, sanctify me, heal me, I'm so sorry for my sins, and then send me out to live differently and model a different way to our people. And as we come to him in confession, we take steps to just do that. It's in God's power, it's with the help of his spirit, but as we confess our sins, we're saying, you know what, the solution to this problem starts with you, God, but very soon after, it starts with me. I'm going to line myself up again with you, Lord. I'm going to live your way. I'm going to spit out the poison myself so I can model something different to this lost world. That's where we need to use confession.